Welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode, I sit down with a member of the water polo community to talk about what helped them become successful in the world of water polo. This week, my guest is Jack Bowen, the head coach at the Menlo School. If you enjoy the episode, please do me a favor, share it with your friends, leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. All right. Uh, we are here at Menlo School with the head coach of water polo here, Jack Bowen. So thank you, Jack, for, for being here. I really appreciate you. Yeah, being thanks on the show. for having me. So why don't we get started with um, just like the basic question, how did you get started coaching water polo? Yeah, the coaching answer is actually somewhat circuitous. I was down, I was training for the 96 Olympic team and I was taking classes at Saddleback College and saw water polo being played. And it turned out to be Capistrano Valley's high school team. And I went down and introduced myself to the coach and said, I'm taking classes here. Would love to get in and work with your goalies. The goalie at the time was Eric Meadows, who ended up playing at UCLA. And it was just, it was a great team of guys, a great culture. The head coach was Jason Lynch at the time. And I ended up coaching there for two years as the assistant coach, boys and girls, and just had a really good time doing it. And that was, that was initially going to be it for me. I got to coach a little bit, had a lot of fun. The Olympics finished and I was coming back to Northern California where I went to school and I called my buddy, Jeremy Laster, Stanford player, 96 Olympian. And I said, Hey, Jeremy, where should I live in NorCal? Cause I'm coming up. I was actually going to, I was going to be the drummer in this band. We were based in this area. We were going to start touring. And he said, I don't know where you should live, but you should coach this team at Menlo school. He had just been hired in the interim to take over for Keith Wilbur. Who's now the head coach at Santa, Santa okay. Clara. Right. I said, gosh, head coach, water polo. Uh, I think I don't know. And he's like, please, you'd be doing me a favor. It's great groups, great families. So kind of as a favor to Jeremy, I took on the job great guys, great family. We won CCS for the first time in school history. And, you know, here I am with you 18 years later. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And what funny story for those people, the people listening is that I met you at Saddleback cause I was at Saddleback college and I remember you taking classes and getting in and working out with us and we'd be shooting on you. We, we, you told us who you were, but I think a lot of us were disconnected from that big time level water polo because one of the reasons we were at community college is because we didn't have have that sort of mentality looking forward. So that's how I met you. And so, I mean, you obviously had a great um, career at Stanford. And I think I saw in a different interview or a different video that you had redshirted your first year, but your coach pulled you out of the redshirt. You got injured. Uh, you had to rehab, you won a national championship, your sophomore year and junior year, was it? Right. Yeah. Okay. And you were training with the Olympic team. So as a player at Stanford, um, and in high school and then on the national team, could you give us some of your like high points and maybe some of your lower points that you experienced as a player? Yeah, no, that, that's actually a really easy question to answer. Um, that, First of all, I just, I kind of lucked out timing wise, like in high school and I played for Randy Burgess, who's one of the all time greats. And my sophomore year, the three goalies on the previous varsity team had graduated and it was me and 
five seniors and a like stud center forward and the scrawny little sophomore goalie. That was the weakness of what what, what seemed like could be the, one of the best teams in the history of San Diego. Yeah. So th- the timing really worked out well. We we won CIFs that year. You know, and being behind a team like that, if if you're you know even a decent goalkeeper, you're gonna have a really good time playing goalie because the shot blocking and the center defending and all of that. And I just I really caught my stride there and pushed myself in the off season. I I quit playing lacrosse, which was my number two sport, and oh, started okay. swimming. And so you know, the high point was you know, sort of embarrassed to say my entire high school career. We won CIF all four years. We had this phenomenal team. I, I went on to play at Stanford, you know, two national championships there. So again, I'm, I'm answering the high points questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the low point though, you mentioned my injury, the low point, I guess I'd have to say was that injury uh, training in Europe with the junior team before uh, senior year of high school and I ended my elbow taking a shot from Dirk Theismann, the um, big German shooter who just it tore my, uh, my medial collateral ligament. And I had to wear a brace my entire senior year, which as a goalie, it made my arm about four inches shorter. Mm. It's a less than ideal injury to yeah, have. Yeah. And I thought it was healed, went to Stanford, re-injured it. And they said, you're going to be out for a year and a half. I had Tommy John surgery. And that's a real, you know, in retrospect, adults always say, oh, gosh, that, that was a great growing moment for me. Clearly at the time, you don't think of it as a growing moment yeah. uh, where I'm out for a year and a half. But I came back way bigger and stronger, the strongest legs I've ever had, and went on to kind of play from there and again, have that success at Stanford. And even with, with New York Athletic Club, you know, winning the, the national championships there a bunch of times. So yeah. uh, I lucked out timing wise, uh, a lot of high points and a low point that, again, I can now say in retrospect was like, I guess, kind of a high point. Yeah, were you... The, uh like an athlete that played multiple sports growing up? A ton of sports. In high school, um, you know, water polo, clearly, but then I played basketball my first two years. Then the soccer team needed a goalie, so I switched to soccer, played soccer my junior, senior year, swam my freshman, uh, played lacrosse my freshman year, swam junior, senior. So definitely multi-sport. I mean, do you feel like that is something that is was very valuable to you playing at a higher level? Hugely. I think maybe... I want to say just being a goalie. I don't think it's true because the studies are starting to show that it's across the board for everyone. But as a goalie to just be able to a the athleticism that's required of the position to be, you know, these little minute movements in this exact geometrical position, all flowing and gracefully and explosive, but also reading players and looking at the body positioning and body language of athletes and knowing like what they can and can't do. So I know what they can and can't do and I can react accordingly. Uh, I have no doubt that the multi-sport approach for me as a goalkeeper was hugely beneficial. So, you know, kind of a veering to the, to the side here, a question that I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, now that you're coaching in high school, you've been here for 18 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, 18 years. Um, what? How do you feel about the state of water polo, high school and club right now? Because everybody that I've spoken to has been so far in Orange County and things are obviously different up here. Um, less clubs, bigger clubs. Um, how do you feel about the state of water polo right now, high school or club or both? Well, so I will say it's a, it's a great question. Um, the, the level of water polo now versus my first year here 18 years ago is through the roof. So the, the level in Northern California has massively improved. Uh, I attribute that to an, there are a number of schools that started smaller clubs. Like my first year here, we finished that three month season and I thought I was done. And everyone said, we want more. Yeah. So I started 
Sopen water polo as a non-competitive club and just an umbrella where we could train because guys wanted to play more. So sort of like a pickup basketball version of yeah. off-season water polo. A lot of other schools adopted that model. I think, you know, Stanford, their functionality and professionalism has shot through the roof and a lot of other clubs have, have come up. So I think th- there's been an increase in off-season almost, I would say, in the last five years t- to a fault. Like, I'm recognizing there's it feels like there's a tournament almost every weekend and kids by this point everyone is wrecked and just exhausted now that we're at the point of jo's where we are you and i sitting here today so i I would say my answer on the whole is massively increased both in in numbers um but also the just the level of play and now my, my concern is that we're getting a little bit close to the like the club soccer the club volleyball model where we're a we're approaching the point where the multi-sport athlete, just in general, this isn't the fault of water polo, mm-hmm. is diminishing. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's, I, you know, this may be sacrilege to say, if we're like playing too much water polo yeah. and there's no downtime. Well, I, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because it does feel people that are our age, right. you know, it, it feels like it's getting to a tipping point. <laughs> it hasn't quite gotten there yet, but I think people are starting to go, oh, there's some, there, there might be something going on here that is not all positive. And I, I think a lot of people can't put their, their finger on it, but I think the the theme is, are we playing too much? Um, is that always a good thing? Are we burning them out? And so, I mean, I mean, but overall, is your feeling pretty positive? Oh, absolutely positive. And I think, you know, the point you bring up is a, is a good one. It, it becomes a little bit of an arms race. And if you can see this through the eyes of an unknowing parent, they're, you know, their kids playing sport X, or if I look at like my daughter and she's doing ballet and I'm yeah. like, I don't know what's a good amount of ballet. And I find out all my na- neighbors are doing ABC and D ballet mm-hmm. and little Ellie Sue Bowen's only doing a and B ballet. And they're all sneering at me as they go off to their next performance. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, gosh, am I doing my daughter a disservice? Cause I don't know the ballet culture. And so here we are, all these clubs are going off to tournament after tournament. And, and you're thinking, Oh my gosh, am I doing my child? a disservice. And so I think like it, it, it's going to have to be a top down. It can't be a bottom up yeah, thing. Whereas yeah. like even like CCS, like our governing body, the CIF in our area just two years ago said, Hey everyone, guess what? Instead of August 13th being the start date, we're going to move it all the way up to August 4th. You can now start training August 4th. And a lot of teams took that option. And I just drew a line in the sand and I said, you know what? We're going to start August 13th at three o'clock. Like yeah. we have the last 16 years and you're going to have that time to your family. And I'm going to have that time to my family. And yeah. we had one of the best seasons we have ever had that year. Yeah. So it's going to take a little bit of drawing that line in the sand from the adults in charge of what's going on. Yeah, There is definitely a fear of like, well, if we don't do this tournament, right. or we don't play this game, then they're going to go somewhere else. Right. So, um, so speaking to, uh, your time here so far at Menlo, um, how many CF championships have you guys won? I was, tr- I was looking on the website. It looked like, uh, five, five, five since yeah. you've been here. Right. Well, actually you won the first, you right. guys won the first when you started here and then the league championships seem to be, yeah. I mean, I think it's 16 out of 18, 16 yeah. out of 18. Wow. That, that's amazing. Is there something that you feel you've seen that's common throughout those real, those championship classes and, and athletes where you're going, okay, this, this player or these players have it, this team has it. Um, no, you know, um, God, that's a great question. I, uh, <clears throat> I th- the through line, <laughs> 
and this is maybe getting into another area, but you know, when I, when I got here and wasn't planning on coaching and I did a little bit of work to think about, okay, what, what do I, what do I want to give these young men in my, you know, short three months mm-hmm. here? Uh, and I, and I, and I delved back to my study of philosophy and I, you know, a lot of work with Aristotle and this, this pursuit of what, you know, what it means to be an excellent human being and tied in with the work I did as a high schooler with Burgess. And our, our team's goal has been be your best. It's never been be the best. And it's a massive difference between the two that I don't feel like I can, I even know what it means to be the best and the best compared to what, like the Olympic team, Mm. the the best team in Southern California, the best team in our league that year, who's got 10 seniors or no seniors. And so instead the focus became inward and, you know, we don't have a single rule on our team. So, you know, if a kid's late, let's talk about like, what happened? Are you, Oh, I'm trying to be my best in chemistry. And I had to meet with my teacher and I couldn't do it this weekend because we had a tournament. Ah, nice job. Why don't you hop in and get warmed up as opposed to say, what are your rules? You know, if if they're late, do they do 10 pushups? And so I think that through line and like that culture has allowed us to one, like achieve more than I would have thought. Like if I came into school and say, Hey, this, this program's never won a CCS championship. Okay. We're going to try to win one. Like that to me would be sort of an odd goal. You try to be your best and all of a sudden your best that year meant this one year. It meant like being arguably the top team in the state. And one year, because we were down and a lot of teams were up, it meant only making it to the quarterfinals. So uh, I think that through line captures a culture that has been pretty consistent, actually, for 18 years. Yeah, no, I mean, clearly it's been very consistent with if you count wins and losses, but as well as the athletes that have gone through the program and gone on to do successful things, play at the next level. But is there is there something that how do you keep them accountable Right. You know, so I don't have a rule on my team either. Actually, the only rule I have is you got to let me know if you're going to be late. Shoot me a text. Just it doesn't matter. You're not going to be punished. I just want to know, you know, why you were late or and you can't cuss. Really, those are the only two rules, you know. And so but how do you keep them accountable, players accountable to the rest of their team? Are they just Um, we we just had the. swearing conversation, you know, and, and the guy missed a shot should have made and he threw a swear word out. We talked about like, gosh, what is it? Like, why are you saying that word out loud? Is it, it's probably to let everyone know you're better than that. Right. you want to show, and maybe it's a, it's a habit or you've seen other quote unquote cool guys do it. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't fall under the banner of being your best mm-hmm. human. And we'll just have that. I'm not going to like punish them. And sometimes I'll swear. And I was like, God, you know, so my bad guys, you know, like we're all, we're all human. We're, we're trying to be our best together. I, yeah. I do think it's really helpful. And this is, this is insight that I'm somewhat reticent to share. Cause it's, yeah. it's, um, it's something that I found so powerful is one year I apologized to my team for just the backstory isn't super important. Hadn't gotten sleep. Work was crazy. My kids were going crazy. I showed up grumpy and I just crushed a group of young men that were otherwise just phenomenal guys working their tails off. And I left feeling terrible. I showed up the next day and apologized. And the captains came to me and they said, oh my gosh, Jack, the team is ready to to jump through any hoop. We've never had an adult come to us and say, I made a mistake. I treated you unfairly. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was like, you, ha- you haven't. And I'm thinking like, I've never done that. So, yeah. so anyway, it's, it's a, it's a relationship building thing that, yeah, you know what? You could find a way to, to sneak through loopholes and, yeah. you know, and I guess that time hasn't quite come yet because there's so much buy-in that the precedent has been set and that culture has been transmitted to the younger group. And so you are building that. I mean, obviously you have an assistant coach or assistant coaches yeah. and yeah, they're yeah. all oh, like, yeah. bought into that. So it starts at the freshman level, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I, I will say I just met with our new JV coach. We talked. We met for about an hour and a half. We talked for about five minutes about X's and O's. Yeah, that's yeah. it on the whiteboard behind your head. Yeah. And we talked the rest of the time about our team's culture. So, so he left. He knows what's important at the yeah. Menlo Water Polo team. Yeah. That's that's great. That's really cool. And I'd, I'd love to pick your brain at one point, <laughs> maybe off the record yeah, yeah. in terms of... Um, so, uh, you know, I kind of touched on this a little bit based on the team, and I, I don't know, maybe it was already answered or you feel like it was already answered, but have there been some uh, similarities in the great players yeah, that you've there's, coached? There's no doubt. I mean, I sort of joke, like I'll go back to, you know, like Grant Zider, who was like the first all-time leading scorer at Menlo mm-hmm. on our first two championship teams, and then to like to like Ben Hole, uh, you know, umpty ump time All American at UCLA, and even now, kid Sam Untrecht, who's you know one of the starters on the junior team, and I I kind of joke about those guys that I do think I've contributed to their growth by really instilling strong fundamentals, but I also think I guess I'm weirdly patting myself on the back. I know when to get out of their way mm-hmm. and just like not overcoach them and yeah. there's you know they're, they're seeing the field in a way that is just it's so natural and those are guys you know when I get in <laughs> we joked about me getting in the goal which I still do with my players yeah. like Ben Hole or, or Zyder or Sam like I I'm a little bit nervous now at, you know, this stage in my quote unquote water polo career, yeah. which isn't a thing um, that they're going to hurt me because they're reading me so well. And it's not like I've taught them, you know, drop your left shoulder so you can get me leaning left and then snap your wrist to the right. Yeah. They figured that out on their own. Yeah. And, and that becomes now dangerous for me. Like I'm going to get injured or something. So, yeah. you know, that's when I can see it in their eyes and like what they're doing that it's just a, they're, they're so tenacious and committed to what they're doing. I, I, I think the challenge for me becomes like getting out of their way while also making sure that they're buying into our culture, which as a side note, all of those guys have done. And when you say getting out of their way, are you talking about, I mean, obviously you're talking about letting their instincts flow naturally and and you're not going to like try to micromanage, but have you ever, have you ever felt or been quote unquote accused of not being hard enough on guys who maybe do their own thing and try to make plays. I mean, and the reason I bring that up is because I have, you know, I I can admit that I have, you know, I've coached some great players that have seemed to be maybe a little bit in in some ways out of control, you know, and, but they're so athletic and they're so gifted that you're like, well, you know, this is going to serve them better later in, in their college career yes, yeah, when they are good. put in a box or, or yeah. in sort of, have you ever been so felt like that? I will, I will say going back to my first two years coaching when I was, you know, 17 and 18 years younger and Grant, you know, Grant actually came to us from football. He got injured playing football. It's just a natural athlete came out for polo. And he was, uh, he was a rough around the edges mm-hmm. guy. And, and the guys on my team, you know, that's the thing, like kids are smart. You and I were talking earlier, like they, they know what's going on. And, and Grant would get, you, you lean on Grant and he would like, look at you like he wanted to not, and great guy. I'm just saying like the fire in his yeah. eyes where I'd be like, <clears throat> okay, Jack, it's, you know, Grant's done this thing that we said, we're not going to do as a team three times. Now it's time to, um, <clears throat> yell at Grant now. <sighs> here I go. Yeah. So like I would consciously be like, Oh man, here I come. And you know, if Grant heard this, he would know and get it and laugh now at this point. So yeah, I mean, I think the, that's, that's really the, the team approach is that you're leaning on everyone equally. And 
we've met, I've mentioned Sam and Ben. We've had a lot of guys that have been, you know, been at that level. They, like they would want that. They're not, Sam doesn't want special treatment. Yeah. There's a chance if I had to add up the hours that I've talked to each player in the last year, there's a chance Sam's gotten slightly more hours because, because he's just a natural, like guys are following him and he's not a rah, rah, let's go Menlo leader. Yeah. But Sam, Guys are following you. Guys are watching. So that that's the those are the conversations you get to have with those guys. Yeah. So you've de- you've dedicated. Um, you know, this is obviously off off topic. You've dedicated a lot of your life to philosophy, and you mentioned that earlier um, in the podcast. Uh, you've written numerous books. Um, you've spoken, uh, you know, publicly and in, in TED talks and things that I've seen. Now I'm going to actually link some of those things in the books uh, in the show notes. Uh, for people to check out, but um, can you summarize after all those years of studying philosophy and writing about it, can you summarize what your overall like thesis is um, about life really um, based off of all of your, how how much time do you have? (laughs) So, uh, so, well, the answer is actually, I mean, yes, to go back to our team's goal, um, be your best. And it, it's a, if we want to get into the realm of philosophy, I, I guess it would be somewhat existential leading, um, <clears throat> leaning, sorry. And certainly Aristotelian in the sense that, um, you know, we're so beyond fortunate to be alive, first of all, and then to be alive in this time. And then to be able to spend X number of hours playing this game that we love. And for me, X number of hours sitting quietly and writing and thinking and ruminating. I mean, that, that is beyond leisure mm-hmm. to do, to, to be able to, to have time to, to write books and spend all this time playing this game. And so I think that it's a, it's from a position of gratitude, really. I mean, you mentioned my Ted talk, my Ted talk is like my life summary in you know, 12 minutes from a position of gratitude that we can then approach water polo training. And I just, we have, we have our preseason coming up, which we call paradise week. And it you know, used to be called hell week. And then I called it heck week as a <laughs> metaphysical twist. And everyone yeah. enjoyed that. But then I thought about it like, well, wait a minute, what are we, what are we saying? The next eight days of your life is going to be hellish. Mm-hmm. You're playing a game you love, pushing yourself to your limits in this beautiful pool of water that's tended to by some person you barely know mm-hmm. uh, at this lovely school, going home to a nice meal and a nice night's sleep, all in pursuit of excellence with all these awesome guys who care about you. Mm-hmm. And that's hell. Whoa. So we call it paradise week now. And I, it's very challenging and I understand that. So I, I think the two absolutely for me go hand in hand in that I can really approach water polo from this position of gratitude that I get by studying, you know, the biggest questions of the universe. Yeah. And so when the, when the coaching career is done, cause at some point it ends for all of us, right? is that where you're going to just put a lot of, I mean, obviously besides your family and your kids. And yeah, yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. I am, um, you know, pe- people play the game. Like if you want, the, the lottery. You want a billion dollars. What would you do? Like, I don't know what I would change right now. Like mm-hmm. I, I have my philosophy classes and my writing, which I just love for what that's worth. But I, I couldn't just be sitting alone writing all the yeah. time. And I have water polo where I'm with these guys and these families and we have this little community and we're playing this game, but I, boy, it would be mind numbing if that's the only thing I did. So 
retirement's going to be tough for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I can't, I, right now I can't say which one I would be dying to give up. Um, cause they certainly, and it's, it's nice too, that they both intersect and I'm able to, you know, right now do a lot of work with PCA where I'm actually applying the philosophy to sports and applying the sports to philosophy to make these seemingly inaccessible ideas come to life because they're happening every minute and every day on the pool deck. Yeah. So I'm going to go, I'm going to come back to the water polo thing. And this is something that has always, I was the goalie coach for the zone um, for a couple of years. And I remember going to some clinics with Stan Sprague and, oh. and um, you know, it always seems like goalies just don't get enough attention, you know, and you coach one of my goalies that we just, you know, you just right. finished a clinic here. Um, what can coaches do? Coaches like myself, what could coaches do to help fix that? Right. And also, how do you approach coaching being a goalie? Is it, it, do you feel like it's different from when you talk to other coaches? Is there a, a different mindset that you have um, that you see different from when you talk to just coaches that were field players? Right. Because I mean, obviously you have teammates, ex-teammates and colleagues that played the field. Right. Um, what First, what could we do as, as a sport, as a community to help develop better goals. Right. So yes, yeah, this is a really good question for coaches. First of all, I got to say, and th- this trend has definitely changed like in, in ice hockey for sure. Um, where every team now is focused on what the goalie's doing and they are really spending time <clears throat> as goalie coaches looking at the position because people are spending so much time on field players. Like if someone scores three goals in a game, they're the hero of the game, but like the goalie and, and the thing that I say about, um, to, to goalies as a sort of a motivational tool, is that like, you know, the, the goal is it's to me, it's like this perfect goalie situation where you've got this 30 square foot object. And once you get out of 12 and under, so you get to a p- position where you're basically getting scored on and missing the shots by inches. Mm-hmm. It's going off your forearm and in or just off your fingertip and in the goal. And so every little thing that you do to improve your game turns a goal scored into a save. And now you're getting goalies are 10, 12 saves a game preventing 12 goals. Mm-hmm. So so I, I am surprised that what you're saying is true. Goalies are not getting 10 to 2. When I meet new goalies from my clinic and I, I give them a packet and I say, here's all the drills. Here's what we're going to be doing today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you two things to focus on. And that way when your coach, you know, what does your coach do when they... Ha- when they have you train and they say, oh, they have me go off to the side mm-hmm. and they, they tell me to do goalie things. And guess what? They show up to me with terrible habits because they've been off flopping around for the last two years. Mm-hmm. So the, the problem, no doubt, <clears throat> is there. There is some there are some great resources. I can tell you, for one, I have posted along with Cap7, we've got 20 videos that if you only went and did those 20 drills, you'd be doing 90% of what I'm doing every day with my own goalies. So the the good news is that coaches are recognizing the importance of this and the information is out there. The tricky thing is, as coaches know, there's there's one of us, there's 20 players. Mm -hmm. Can we really turn our backs on 18 to focus on two? So, So I do think the strategy there is meeting with the goalies outside of practice time, working with them for an hour, going through the things that they should be working on, why they should be doing it, how they should be doing it. And then at least when you say, Hey, goalies, go do quote unquote goalie things. They can say, oh yeah, we're going to do the step and the three ball and the hip over and we're going to do it and work on these three things. So that at least while you're coaching the other 18, you can't turn your back on them. They're 
doing what they're supposed to be doing for some, for a reason that they know exactly why they're doing it. So you're, I mean, so basically it would benefit me to have a workout outside of my workout. I think to take an hour, 30 minutes after practice or whatever it might be. Take an hour, let's say twice a month, just not coaches are so stretched thin. So I'm trying to give a realistic prescription. Yeah. One hour, twice a month. And you can also, you know, I have this map of goal that goalies, John Wilson actually just finished setting the all time save record at Johns Hopkins last year. He took this map that I I gave him of what shots during games went in and where they were from and where they scored and which shots were blocked. And then he actually created this, this uh, matrix where it showed him, Hey, you're getting scored on skip shots from cross cage more than other shots. And then he tailored his workout accordingly. Mm. And that's another thing to do is you're watching the game and taking notes, you know, cross cage, blah, 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 you know, so, so that the, just like everything else, the, the workouts are tailored and not just this cut and dry. Like, okay, we're going to do high corners today. Yeah. Like what, why? Yeah. And, and how should we do sets of 20 where our technique gets really sloppy? Cause a lot of coaches, and I think this is a good quick takeaway. A lot of coaches combine fundamentals and technique work with conditioning. Now, as anyone knows, that's going to cause your fundamentals and technique to suffer and you're creating bad habits. Mm-hmm. So I would for sure keep those separate do your conditioning work your legs but then rest and come do short quick powerful sets of fundamentals and techniques so you're building good habits on top of the conditioning foundation well that's good advice and i mean my player that just left um she had i mean the mom was her mom was telling me great things about you know what she was doing here so i mean obviously thank you for putting on those clinics <laughs> yeah. you know in between jos and i'm I sh- i'm sure you put them on all year long yeah. i would assume yeah. so um probably put like a link in the show notes for that too just so people can get in touch great. yeah so i have a couple more questions um this might be a little bit long-winded but if there was something that you could change about water polo right now anything at all, is there anything that you would want to change about water polo from USA water polo to high school to a rule to everything, anything else? Hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm not one to really, um, mix things up in this area. I I will say one thing, just, you know, running a pool at JOs and coming off of my, wow, aren't we fortunate to even be alive approach? (laughs) The amount of yelling and screaming and cursing and complaining coming from the grownups mm-hmm. in the stands, treating other grownups the way, like it's kind of become the norm. Um, and you're running a 12 and under course. Yeah. Here. I, I gotta say, I'm, I'm pretty surprised that it's become accepted. So that's a tricky thing to change. I mean, I, at, at my program day one of the season, we do water polo one one where I teach everyone in the program, the rules. <laughs> Uh, because one thing you'll hear parents yelling, you know, ball under he, my kid didn't, the, the other player did it. And they don't know the ball under rule or, mm-hmm. um, and but I also teach them our strategy, like, Hey, here's some things we're working on. We're trying to get the ball down this side and do a crossover and get it weak and weak. Doesn't mean your kid's weak. Ha ha ha. It means <laughs> yeah. on the other side. And so this um, is a parents and everybody in the program, every, everyone. Wow. Okay. So they're getting the rules, the strategy, and then they're also getting a very strong message from me. And I'm, and I say, I'm going to go back to year one. All I saw the parents do in the stands was party and celebrate their kids. 
that's part of the reason I'm here because of the parent community that year, which I thought was going to be a nightmare. It was the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. My expectations from you party and celebrate the amazing stuff your children are doing. If there's an issue with the refereeing, if the refereeing is biased, which I've yet to encounter what I believed a referee to be intentionally calling, making calls against or for my team. Um, I'll take care of it. If there's something that involves player safety, which a handful of times will come up, I will address that immediately. Mm -hmm. Your job is to party. You know the rules. Have fun. So I, I think that's one thing. I, I do think the yellow card could come out <laughs> faster. Like if you really want to stop it, show the don't don't wave the finger. Like the yellow card is a warning. Yeah, waving the finger. What, like that's it's like the, a double warning. I don't basically. even know what that what that is. Um, so I think that that's a, it's a bummer. Like I think that's is to, to answer your question. Um, and I gosh, if I had to really stretch myself to say what could we tweak uh, in the way it's called, because a referee, a local referee, just asked me this question. Um, I think at the younger and or JV levels to allow slightly quicker calls up top, so that the game has some flow to it. And mm. I also know I can imagine coaches like disagreeing, saying, "What you want to just gift players? You know, they're how are they going to learn how to pressure pass? Well, hopefully they're going to learn that in, in their training." Mm. I understand the counter to that. I just think I see players just you get pressed, you get pressed, you get pressed, and the ball turns over, and younger players pressure passing is really hard to do. Yeah, and the ball gets stuck, and it. It's not a fun game to watch. It doesn't seem like it's very fun to play. So I, I've been asked the question. I guess that would be my yeah. response. To okay. It. No. And so uh, for the sake of time, I mean, I know you have a meeting right now coming up here in a couple of minutes. Um, I want to ask you a couple more questions. The first one being um, who have been your biggest influences, mentors uh, in your coaching career, playing career? Uh, that the without thinking about it, I mean, the easy answer is Randy Burgess. I mean, he, um, not, not just for the work he did with me, although gosh, I have such fond memories of like, you know, him saying, Jack, I have no idea how to coach goalies, which is strange given the success he had had, even, even up to that point, you know, to whatever it was now, 20 some odd years ago, but like driving up to, to Rich Corso's camp to like learn goalkeeping and then coming back and like, again, sort of to my comment about, apologizing when you've done wrong mm -hmm. him, this amazing coach and adult figure in my life saying, admitting, I kind of don't know what to do with you as a goalie and then learning together with him and him getting in the water. Like I just have such fond memories of just like my own father playing catch with me in the front yard, like my coach getting in the water and saying, let's do that drill. Yeah. We just learned together from rich Corso. Um, <clears throat> and it's just like, he, he did a really good job of, you knew he cared without him saying like, I care about you and you, you guys mean a lot to me. You just, you knew from the energy and the heart that he put into what he was doing that he cared. And that, that's a, I'm, I'm more explicit. I tell my team, you know, we just went on our training trip and we had this great conversation. I said, wow, guys, I'm, I'm blown away by you. I, I can't share with you how much I care about you. And I, I kind of feel like I can do that because I got that from Randy and that made that experience so special. So he, I mean, he's really the big, if I had, you know, had to really think, um, I've had great coaches. I mean, I had Corso on the Olympic team and, yeah. um, I got to play for Vargas on the national team and Dante Dedamonte, you know, but by then I'm, I'm kind of an adult, right? Like you're 1920 at Stanford with, you know, Weigel and Laster and Frank and, um, not that it's not a formative year. That was an amazing time in my life. I just think, 
like going back and yeah. the, the, the rule I have for, for coaches, since we're kind of talking about coaching here is the sort of the, the 20 year rule, like not what are your players going to think about you tomorrow or in a year? That's, that's pretty important. Um, but you know, when they're adults and they look back and say, gosh, how did that coach treat me? Like, what was the culture of our team? Like what was celebrated? Like, what are they going to think about you then? And you know, that's kind of where I am with, you know, when I wrote that article, I got to reference Randy, even though it hadn't been quite 20 years, but yeah. that would be, you know, the definite answer to that. Very cool. I'm, I'm actually trying to get Randy to be on the podcast. I've oh. asked him a couple of times. Unfortunately, I asked him right after a loss, so he wasn't too stoked, yes. but I know he wants to do it. So, um, and the last question uh, I have is what advice would you give to yourself 18 years ago about coaching? <sighs> What, what would what would be the number one thing that you kind of look back and say, man, I, I should have done this differently or anything? Because, I mean, obviously, when you were I'm, I'm assuming when you started coaching, you were, you know, didn't have kids. Right. You, no, no, no. you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, balancing everything out at, at this point has probably been somewhat difficult, but manageable. Yeah, I think um it- it comes back to the apologizing thing. I, I wish I'd allowed myself to, to strip away a little bit of the ego. You know, it's, it's so hard because like, like a good athlete and a good coach, you're often partly good. Cause you got a little bit of that chip on your shoulder. You're, you think of yourself, like I, I'd go into games, you know, Sam would be like, how are these guys going to score on me? Like, Oh, what these guys, yeah. they're never going to score. And that's part of the reason I was able to have success as a goalie is I thought I was better than all the guys that were shooting on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that especially younger coaches, like the more um, that you can get through that ego, an easy way is to apologize when you mess up. You're going to mess up. Like I'm already like 20 apologies into it this yeah. year in my in my you know um, grown up life. Um, that, that I guess that would be the one. That's a really interesting question. That would be the one thing is to allow yourself to be sort of flawed in front of your teammates because as a coach you're by nature you're you're pointing out their flaws and again not because they're flaws you're trying to make them better but you are sitting there pointing out things they could be doing better every single day how about every now and then saying hey guys you know what i think i did it too much or i gotta apologize i think i did it too much because uh, that that really builds that that kind of unity and it, it it seems in the male athletic culture as a sign of weakness mm-hmm. when everyone knows that it's a sign of strength and, and community so that's great i really appreciate you sitting down with me and and uh, doing this podcast good luck the rest of the JOs and also good luck in the fall. So yeah, thank you very so much. much. It's been awesome. Thanks, Steve.